You're listening to Teach Me Thy Statutes, a production of the Ephesus School Network. Blessed art thou, O Lord, teach me thy statutes. The company of the angels was amazed when they... Hi, this is Father Aaron Warwick with Jason Everett, and you are listening to the Teach Me Thy Statutes podcast, episode number 24. Today's reading is from Luke chapter 1, verse 24 through 38. In those days, Elizabeth, the wife of Zacharias, conceived, and for five months she hid herself, saying, Thus the Lord has done to me in the days when he looked on me, to take away my reproach among women. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Hail, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and considered in her mind what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How shall this be, since I have no husband? And the angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your kinswoman Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For with God nothing will be impossible. And Mary said, Behold, I am the handmaid of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Our reading today is appointed each year for March 25th as we celebrate the Feast of the Annunciation. And there's much that we could discuss here, I think. But, Father, would you begin by discussing the honor that we give to Mary uh, for example, as, as first among the saints as other things, and address some of the common misconceptions that some have about honor versus worship. Yeah, it's a very common misconception that many of our Protestant brethren especially have about the Orthodox and Mary, one that can make them uncomfortable. And coming from that type of background, uh, Protestant uh, evangelical background, I can understand this, and I'm certainly sensitive to that. I would start by sort of backing up and looking at the big picture. In most uh, Protestant churches, there's very little mention of Mary. So when you come to an Orthodox church, the impression could be that we're mentioning her a lot, or some people have even used phrases like, you're mentioning her all the time when they talk to me about it. But if you step back and look at things more objectively, say just look at our service books and kind of go through them and highlight when she's mentioned, you'll see that well over 95% of the service have direct references to the Holy Trinity or to any given person of the Holy Trinity at various times. So the idea that Mary is somehow a focal point is just objectively wrong, but certainly understandable that people might feel that way given the context that I mentioned. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, Father, and something for us to keep in mind. But even at, say, at 5%, why do we bring up Mary during the services? Well, I think there is one phrase that gets repeated several times in most of our services. It comes at the end of what we call the litanies, which to those unfamiliar with the Orthodox Church 
are a series of petitions, a series of prayers. And we specifically say we are calling her Mary, the Mother of God, to our remembrance, as well as calling to remembrance all the saints, as we say. And then the most important part, let us commend ourselves and each other and our whole life unto Christ our God. So the main purpose that we honor and venerate Mary is to call to remembrance her example and to use it as a model. And certainly it is not in any way, shape, or form intended to replace the perfect model, Jesus Christ, but is just one of many examples, albeit very much similar to Christ in that it was a near-perfect example of how we should live our lives. Father, why do you say that it's a near-perfect example? What do you mean by that? Well, I think there's a lot of context we miss in understanding the story of Mary and her conception of Christ. But before I get to that, I want to reiterate something we've discussed on this podcast before. And what's that, Father? The true meaning, biblically speaking, of suffering. What it means in the Bible about taking up your cross, as Jesus says. And what we've said about that, just to recap at a high level, is that taking up your cross or suffering for God or for the gospel is not primarily about physical suffering. Physical suffering may happen, as it did to Jesus himself or to the martyrs, but the true biblical suffering, the taking up of the cross, is being willing to suffer shame for the sake of following God, of doing his will. And very often that shame comes from our fellow religious people, so let's keep that in mind. Yes, I remember talking about that, and it makes sense. So... What, then, is the context that you want to highlight? The context is that, by all accounts, and certainly this makes sense historically, uh, even up until recent times in the ancient Near East, the context is that Mary, at the time of her conception of Christ, was only 13 to 15 years of age. Regardless of that, what's indisputable from the biblical narrative is that she was a virgin, that she was betrothed to Joseph, but not yet married. So this is the backdrop. Furthermore, you have to keep in mind that in her society, you could be stoned, put to death, left for dead, essentially, because Joseph had every legal right to leave her, having become impregnated outside of wedlock, which means that she would have been unprotected by a man, which was dangerous at that time, especially at her age and again being pregnant. So to put it mildly, this was not a society like ours, where teenage out-of-wedlock pregnancy is basically accepted. Uh, Sure, young women today will still face judgment and so forth. I'm not saying by any means that it's easy for them, but you really don't have to worry about your physical well-being. There will be a lot of support in society at large and most likely within your family. Mm -hmm. I I see what you mean, Father. And these all seem like important points, uh, points that we probably don't normally consider when we read the story. Right, and to sort of bring this all together then, what you have is Mary as someone who is, before Christ even taught this, taking up her cross. She is willing to suffer shame for the name and the will of God. She willingly and knowingly puts herself at risk, both a risk of being shamed, of having a poor reputation, of being physically harmed to accomplish God's will. And that is something that her son, Jesus Christ, will accomplish perfectly and most clearly by his humiliating crucifixion. But he only does that. He only comes into the world and accomplishes this because Mary herself took great personal risk to do the will of God to bring him into the world. And that's why she is so highly honored and is a beautiful, wonderful example for us. 
From the beginning, she points the way to Christ in a prophetic way, not so much by her words, but by her deeds. And we hear in Luke's Gospel, if you keep reading on a few verses from where today's passage ended, we hear what is referred to as the Magnificat or the Magnification of Mary. You'll notice she begins by saying that her soul magnifies the Lord. That's where the name comes from. And this Magnificat is repeated in some of the hymns of our Orthodox Church. Uh, so, Jason, why don't you go ahead and read that for us? Sure. It begins in Luke chapter 1, verse 46, and goes through verse 55. Quoting now, And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. He has showed strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent empty away. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. Thanks, Jason. One of the main things I want to point out there is simply that Mary says, From henceforth all generations will call me blessed. So quickly, just pointing out that our recollection of Mary in our services follows this biblical proclamation, this prophecy in a sense, that she made. And we highlight this unique position she was in as one who brought forth Jesus Christ into this world. But even more importantly, we use her as a reference as someone who again took up her cross as one who suffered for doing the will of God, when what she did would be unjustly judged as being shameful by this world because it was a complete scandal for someone in her position to be pregnant. One other thing I wanted to ask, Father, is about the church teaching us that Mary was ever virgin. What's the significance of this? Well, this was actually not even a controversial issue until after the Protestant Reformation, the notion of Mary being ever virgin was something that the Orthodox and Roman Catholics never disputed. It was something they always held in common. In fact, with all the problems Martin Luther had with the Roman Catholic Church, and remember, he, he had his list of 95 theses, the idea of the ever virginity of Mary was not on the list. So this became controversial later, and to be honest, I'm not even sure why. In any case, I think the problem is worse today because in English Bibles, you have in the book of Matthew, chapter 1, verse 25, this saying that Joseph, quote, did not know her, did not know Mary, and that's a biblical phrase for saying they did not have sexual intercourse, that Joseph did not know her until she had brought forth her firstborn son. And so many read into that, especially that part about until, uh, that there is an implication that after the birth of Christ, Joseph and Mary went on to have regular marital relations. And we're running out of time, and quite frankly, I don't think most of our audience wants to get as technical as we would need to in order to study this issue thoroughly. So I hope you will take my word that in the Greek, the implication that they went on to have regular marital relations is just not there. Now, this phrase in no way implies... Uh, and, and the English translation, uh, until, this Greek phrase, in no way implies they did not have sexual intercourse. It's simply, completely, entirely neutral. The point of Matthew bringing it up, in fact, is simply to once again stress that Christ's birth was from a virgin. So, to be succinct, this verse proves nothing for or against the idea of Mary being ever virgin. Where does this doctrine come from, then? 
On the Feast of Mary in the Church, in fact, even last night at Vespers, we read from the Old Testament a passage from Ezekiel chapter 43, verse 27 through chapter 44, verse 4. And again, we're running short on time, so I'll just summarize. But the church sees this passage as a messianic prophecy and views Mary as the gate that's referenced there in Ezekiel through which the Lord shall enter and Christ as the prince referenced in that same passage. In the middle of that passage we read, and I'll read it now, we hear about the gate being shut, the Lord entering through it, and then again the gate being shut. So here's the passage. I'll begin the quote here. This gate shall be shut, it shall not be opened, and no man shall enter in by it, because the Lord, the God of Israel, shall enter in by it, and it shall be shut. That's the end of the quote. So I think the church's historic understanding of this passage as a reference to both Christ and Mary helps to understand this traditional position, again, shared by the Orthodox and the Roman Catholics on the ever-virginity of Mary. Very helpful. Thank you for that explanation, Father. Uh, my final question for the day is about a phrase that is commonly used during the services of the Orthodox Church, which is, Most Holy Theotokos Save Us. And for those who don't know, Theotokos refers to Mary, and it means the God-bearer. I think this can be a stumbling block to some as it appears that we're stating that the Theotokos is responsible for our salvation. Father, would you help us to understand why it is we use this language in our services? Yeah, I think the answer really is fairly simple. Mary, again, is in the unique position of being the one who quite literally brought forth our salvation in the person of Jesus Christ. So she is intimately part of the salvation story of the salvation narrative that plays out throughout Scripture. But still, the church doctrine is very clear that Mary is not the one who saves us in the same way that Christ saves us. So obviously the phrase here can be confusing. Yet again, the answer is really simple. The word salvation, or more specifically the phrase save us or save me, is quite versatile. So for example, if I'm drowning and I yell to someone to save me, I'm clearly not meaning or implying the same thing as if I'm asking Christ to save me. Again, we're running out of time, so just going to keep it simple. The church is always distinguished that Christ is the one who saves us and reconciles us to God. Mary, yes, has a very special and unique role to play in that story, but her saving us is different than Christ saving us. Her saving us is through her prayers to Christ on our behalf and through her unique position as the mother of God. Very helpful discussion today, Father, as we celebrate the Annunciation. Thank you. You're welcome. We began today's episode by addressing some of the common misconceptions regarding Mary and why she has paid such great honor and respect in the Orthodox Church. Father Aaron began by clarifying that while Mary is mentioned occasionally in our services, the vast majority of our services are directed to the Holy Trinity, or any given person of the Trinity. In the instances where Mary is referenced, we call to remembrance her example, as well as all the saints, so that we might use them as a model. This is in no way meant to replace the perfect model, our Lord and God and Savior Jesus Christ. We were then reminded of what is meant by taking up your cross, and suffering for the gospel. This is not a physical suffering, but a willingness to suffer shame for the sake of following God and doing His will. And Mary provides us with a near-perfect example here. Unwed and facing the possibility of being abandoned by her betrothed, she faced not only great physical danger, but severe judgment and humiliation. 
But by her willingness to accept God's will, she points the way to Christ by her actions, so that he might come into the world to save us. This is central to the reason why she is so revered and honored in our church. Mary willingly became the God-bearer, the Theotokos, and in this way plays a unique role in our salvation. This role is what we reference in our services when we pray, Most Holy Theotokos, save us. Thank you for listening to Teach Me Thy Statutes. We hope you tune in next week for a new episode. Alleluia, glory to thee, O God. Alleluia, 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 glory to thee, O God. O our God and our hope, glory.